My friends, would you stand for the reading of the Lord's word this morning? I am reading Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10, if you will join me in following along. Again, this is the Lord's word. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the Lord's word. Would you please be seated? Again, Father, we thank you for this word and pray now that you would bless your servant and these your people, uh, those who join from afar as well. We ask, Lord, that you would keep the devil from stealing away the seed of the gospel. I pray that you would help me to be plain, and I pray that you would keep the word from being misunderstood. Oh, Father, we recognize that this is not just a man standing up and reciting um, a speech, but this is your ordained ends for advancing your kingdom. So we commit this matter to you and ask that you would use an imperfect man, that you would use uh, an imperfect process to accomplish your perfect ends. We humbly ask this, that you would advance your kingdom and cause the kingdom of Satan great injury. We pray that Christ Jesus himself would be magnified in every heart and in every life. We ask this again in his name. Amen. You may do the very thing that I do, and that is you scan headlines, you multitask, you listen to news reports, and you hear you're doing one thing and you're hearing something else going on in the background. As a casual observation myself, it seems to me, and I might be wrong, but it seems to me that there has been greater attention this year being given to the Passion Week and Good Friday and to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've heard more reports. I've seen more reports. I've listened to interviews being given uh, this week where the name of Jesus Christ is mentioned, and it's mentioned in reverent tones. Perhaps it's because of the violence, the threats of the transgender community, or the fear of one-world governments, or of political tyranny, why people are starting to now say, ooh, maybe we've gone too far. Maybe we need to rethink uh, the path we're on. I'm not sure. It would seem to me that people are looking for hope because they are genuinely afraid. They see that something is happening. 
And I would say, while um, I think there's a whole lot of reforming that still needs to take place, I would say it's a good trend. I always think it's a good trend. I love hearing on the news when somebody speaks the name of Jesus Christ in a proper way. You see, we've relegated the truth of the scriptures so often, and I think prior to COVID that perhaps this is what was happening. We were acting sleepy and lethargic, sort of like that feeling and that, that state that comes over a person after he's had his second and third helpings at Thanksgiving dinner, and you feel bloated and you're just like, oh, I need to go take a nap. It almost seems like the Lord's Church was having that Thanksgiving bloating taking place. Yes, of course, the gospel, the resurrection, of course they're important, but let's not get crazy about things like this. It was as if, prior to COVID, the resurrection and Resurrection Sunday took a sort of sideline status, and that what was really the main event was we get together with our families and friends, we eat Reese's peanut butter eggs, and we get a new spring outfit, and that seemed to be the extent of the importance of the resurrection. The resurrection story, the resurrection account, um, to many, I believe, has taken on a sort of inspirational, uh, heartwarming account, um, but it had no real significance for many people, or they didn't see the significance of what the resurrection is all about. And so it almost fell into the camp of myth, of, you know, the, the kinds of things where they, they, teach, they teach you, taught us these things in Sunday school, characters with great big dilated pupils, and, but they're just stories. They're not real things. They're fantastic stories meant to just encourage and inspire and embolden us, but no real significance. My friends, as we read and, as, and why I've read Matthew 27, most of it anyways, in these first 10 verses of Matthew 28, is because we must never stop thinking of the significance of the resurrection. We must never fall prey to that mindset as though, yes, it's a, it's a pretty important story, but it's just a story after all. What does it really have to do with life? Um, we mustn't think of the resurrection account as myth. We mustn't think of it as folklore or legend. The Bible does not allow that option for us. In fact, as Matthew records it and the other gospel writers uh, record the events, they all treat it as quite historic. We are told when this took place, now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, we are told who the witnesses were, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, that is the mother of James and Joseph. In fact, the other gospel accounts even mention other women who were involved. We are also told where and what took place. They came to look at the grave. Matthew is recording in simple, straightforward language the circumstances surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's factual it's historic. My grandmother saw the first flight of the Wright brothers with her father. She remembered when the Titanic 
sunk. Those are facts. The gospel of the resurrection, the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is as factual as any other historic fact because it occurred. And that's what you are meant to understand. It is not, it is not just a legend. It is not fictional. It is not merely a story given to children to leave them in awe. It has purpose and it has meaning for us even today. Paul himself treated this as quite the historic fact. He says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, eventually saying that he also appeared to him as one who was least. So accept the gospel, accept the truth of the resurrection, or deny it, but to think of it as nothing other than an inspiring story is wrong. It is a historic event that has immediate import for the world, and it has immediate import for you. Written and recorded as a historic event, so that understanding that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, you and I, friends, no longer need to be afraid. We no longer need to be afraid in this world or after death because of what Jesus Christ has done. Without a resurrection, without the resurrected Christ, life is miserable. Amen? It is. It's miserable. There is no hope. Listen to verse 1. And it becomes interesting just to read in chapter 28, verse 1, uh, what is written. We read this. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. I want to focus in on those words. They came to look at the grave. I'm not going into any other details there. I'd like you to, to consider why Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, rose early and came to the tomb. We are told that they came to look at the grave. Now, if you look at the other gospel accounts, Mark or Luke, uh, each of the other writers brings out various details which are complementary of the other accounts, each writing to a specific audience and for a specific purpose. Both Mark and Luke point out that the women, that is Mary Magdalene and Mary the other, they have bought spices so that they might come and anoint the body of Jesus. Now, they have not been able to do so because of the Sabbath day. Uh, they were hindered from doing so. They couldn't get things together uh, in time, so they came after the Sabbath day in order to anoint the body of Jesus. Um, these are recorded by Mark and Luke uh, that they were attentive to Jesus in life, and they were also devoted to him in death. Matthew, likewise, says the same. There is no doubt that this is what they have come to do to anoint the body. So my point is this. Uh, in Matthew's account, he does not say that they have come to anoint the body. Rather, he says that they have come to look at the grave. Why not say that they have come to anoint the body and on the way they stop to look at the grave? Why not say something like that? Why does Matthew point out that they have come to look at the grave? I believe that Matthew was highlighting not their task, but rather their frame of mind at this moment. A few years back, my brother um, 
one of my brothers lived in Charleston, South, uh, South Carolina. And that uh, Dylan Roof had gone in and shot up a Bible study or a prayer meeting. And I went to that location when I visited my brother a few years back. I went to that location and I just went there to stare at the church. It was a surreal event. Um, this big, beautiful AME church building, you know, limestone and gates and typical southern fashion was beautiful. And to know that just on the other side of the gate and on the other side of the doors was the blood of brothers and sisters in the Lord that was spilt by a needless and senseless shooting, a wicked shooting. I didn't go because I had any job. I walked off the main street, I found it on my Google Maps, and I walked to that building just to say, huh, what a strange and weird world we're living in. The Marys, as I have referred to them, go to the tomb to look at the grave. Matthew says nothing about them coming to anoint the body, though certainly this is what they are there to do. I believe he's addressing their frame of mind. They have come to look at it, to view attentively, to take view of, to survey the grave. We were told in, in uh, chapter 27, 55, and 56, many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to, the, to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And then we're told in verse 61 that Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary. And what were they doing? They're sitting opposite the grave. These women have a particular concern, particular fondness, love, devotion, and adoration of Jesus we're given a picture here of these women. Mary Magdalene was delivered from seven demons, and the other Mary, these, these women, they followed Jesus from Galilee. They ministered to Jesus and his disciples. And here they've come to the tomb where Jesus was entombed by Joseph of Arimathea. He goes away, and the Marys are sitting opposite the grave. The picture we're given of them is that they are devoted, they are loyal, they are tender-hearted, sweet, lovely women who, unlike most of his disciples, were not afraid to be counted among his followers. One thing I've learned about women, they are amazing. They are amazing how they are willing to do things that men will never do. They are surely stout-hearted, these women. They're not asking, somebody might see us sitting here looking at the tomb. They're not saying that. They don't give a rip because something constrains them more than what other people think of them. They are constrained by the love of Christ. It's almost as if they can't believe what has happened has just happened. Think of it. Just a week earlier, the people were cheering for Jesus, singing or saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And now this? Can you imagine how stunned they were, how dazed in disbelief they are that their Lord is dead? It all happens so fast. It's so dark. It's so unjust. Think of this. Just a week, a week and a half earlier, everything was going swimmingly. Even Judas was on board. 
There's no problems. The disciples are enjoying a supper. Peter's saying, they might all fall away. Not me, Jesus. I'm your man. And what has happened? These women, as they, the facts are flying around in their mind, the disciples have, have had a, quite a disappointing behavior. There's Judas's betrayal. There's lack of follow-through. Even the brothers couldn't stay awake when Jesus asked them to pray in the garden. They acted as if they didn't even know Jesus at one point. And Jesus himself was treated as a criminal. He's taken before the religious leaders. He's lied about, accused of blasphemy. He's beaten. He's mocked. He's denied. He's misjudged by Pilate, rejected by the masses in favor of Barabbas, a real criminal. He is scourged, belittled, and crucified. Such suffering he underwent. And even Jesus himself said something so amazing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's going on in the minds of of these two sisters, Mary Magdalene and Mary the other? Can you get a sense of how their world at this point must have been just turned completely upside down? I can't begin to imagine. Whoever thought that this could have happened to Jesus Christ, that it would all end this way, Whoever thought that our leaders, the religious leaders, the political leaders could be so weak and could be so godless, we are reminded of the Psalm 22. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. Here this one true light, the one full of grace and truth, was killed. Now we might understand knowing these things, why they came to look at the grave. All their hopes have now been dashed. All of this has been brought to a sudden end. And amazingly, but by God's providence, they didn't remember that Jesus had even told them repeatedly that he would be raised up on the third day. Just quickly, if you turn with me back to Matthew 16, verse 21, we read this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So now he's talking plainly about it. Turn over to chapter 17, verse 23, and we read this. And they will kill him, and he will be raised up on the third day, and they are deeply grieved. And then in chapter 20... Verse 19, we read, And will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. He has been telling them this, and they don't even remember it. And yet, the enemies of the Lord Jesus, the enemies of his people, say this in chapter 2764. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. They even had an idea of knowing what what to expect. But the women and the disciples had forgotten. So they come to the grave. They are resolute. They are without hope. 
Their mindset being, I'm quite certain, and I think I've proved that, that life is miserable and every good thing must come to an end. My friends, that may be some of us in this place this morning. Life is miserable and every good thing must come to an end. And it may be because you have relegated the facts of this event to the file called myth. You are hopeless, just as these women. You take the attitude, it was nice while it lasted, but it looks like another failure. What we are left with is a society that is stupid and corrupt. We have uh, leaders, religious and political, who are out to preserve their own reputations and to line their own pockets with gold. We have truly no hope. Look at the world around us. Look at the things that are taking place. I just want, Lord, please just take my life now and get me out of here. Is that you? Life stinks. And friends, if, if, if the resurrection didn't happen, if Jesus Christ and all that the scriptures tell us is a myth and a fable, then truly life does stink. It does. And Christians should be pitied. And you, my friends, if you were to look to 1 Corinthians 15, you should eat and drink for tomorrow you die. Really, really, philosophically, there's only one of two options that make any sense. Jesus is a fake. The whole thing is a sham. It's a, it's a fable. And you are to be pitied. And you should eat, drink, and go have a wonderful time because you're going to die and your body's going to go to the grave just like a dog. Or, it's all true, and we have hope. I don't understand people who want to be uh, philanthropists who hate Jesus Christ. I go, you're ridiculous. There is no point to that. If Christ is real... We have hope. If Christ isn't real, this world does stink. And really, friends, remember that old show, Hill Street Blues? You should go out there and do it to them before they do it to you. That's the life. That's life without the gospel. That's life without a resurrection. Job writes, For what is the hope of the godless when he is cut off, when God requires his life? But as was pointed out, this is an historic event with tremendous import and immediate import for you and me. Listen again to verses 2 through 8. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angels said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Christ is risen. Christ has risen. Life without Christ is a miserable, miserable idea. But because Christ has risen, what are we told? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. They have come expecting the tomb to be sealed up. 
Mark's gospel and Matthew's both talk about the stone being rolled in front and having it be a giant stone. And Matthew points out, behold, or see here, there was a severe earthquake. One commentator said that this earthquake means as much as, listen, the Lord is speaking. The earthquake occurred because God had sent one of his servants to do his bidding. And we are told, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. So impressive, so brilliant, so daunting was the appearance of the angel. So powerful that the guards themselves who were guarding the the, the tomb uh, shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And they were put there to make sure that nobody tampered with the body, right? The stone, we are told, is extremely large, which was over the entrance of the grave, which they had come to look at, and the stone was rolled away. Rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let people in to see what had taken place. Picture it. These despondent followers of our Lord come to to finish the burial customs. They come to look at the grave. They come and find nothing as they had expected. The earthquake, the guards, uh, they're not functioning at their posts. Here sits this angel, brilliantly uh, glorious, sitting on top of the gravestone, which has now been rolled away, and the tomb has been opened. What this heavenly messenger is about to say changes everything, and it turns this miserable, rotten life and brings meaning and brings light into darkness. Again, their message is this, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. They are afraid, and for good reason. There's a severe earthquake, the angel, the guards falling down like dead men. But worse than these was that these devoted followers of our Lord who cared for him, something's been done to the tomb, something has happened. We saw this closed up day before last, and now we don't understand what's gone on here. He knows that they were afraid. He knew of their immediate concern and tells them the very thing that they never, ever thought they would hear the kind of thing you hear only in your dreams. But in this instance, it was real. You ever had that dream? I have dreamt several times of my parents since their passing and the happiness I feel when I see them in my dreams. And you wake up. And you say to yourself, someday I'll be with them again. I can just imagine that the Marys, when they saw this take place, and the angel says, come in, take a look. He's not here. He's risen. They rub their eyes. Are we dreaming? Pinch me. They're pinching each other back and forth. Wake me up. This is too good to be true, but it's not too good to be true. It is actually what happened. It actually is the thing that happened. The one, the one that you love, the one who was full of grace and truth, the one, Mary, who delivered you from seven demons, the one who healed the blind, who cured the leper, who made the lame to walk, who raised the dead, who forgives the sins. 
He's not dead. He's alive. He's alive. The one who treated you with kindness and dignity. The one who was crucified on that wretched cross that you sat and endured every moment watching him suffer. He is not here. For he has risen just as he said, come see the place where he was lying. You won't find him in this tomb. Come see for yourself. Why? Because he has risen just as he said. And we read the scriptures where Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, 21, in Matthew 17, 23, and, and in chapter 20, verse 19, Jesus said himself that he would rise again. Is it a magician's trick? Just a neat thing he did? Or is there something more that has taken place? Why is this significant and why is this fact so important for us, friends? Understand that death came into this world because of sin. You are going to die because of your sin. Your descendant of Adam and Eve. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. You deserve to die because of your sin. Paul says it in Romans 5, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. There is judgment and condemnation for all who sin. So then as, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. My friends, Jesus Christ came to bring life to those who were under the condemning wrath of God. And God himself, being righteous and holy, does not clear the guilty. He doesn't and can't just overlook sin. This is the very reason Christ himself went to Calvary's cross. Jesus said in John 10, 10 and 11, that the thief, that is Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He did not die on Calvary's cross because of his sin, because he had no sin, though tempted in all ways as we are. He died because of your sin. He died because of my sin. He lived a righteous and perfect life, fulfilling the whole, the entire law of God. And he gave his life to appease the wrath of God against the sinner on Calvary's cross. He came to satisfy the wrath of God for his people. This is what Jesus Christ did. His death was a tremendous sacrifice on the sinner's behalf. What a wondrous love he just, uh, demonstrated for us. But there is something more wonderful than even his death, isn't there? And it's his resurrection. It's the resurrection. That's why, friends, I said earlier, it is the single most important, single most significant fact in all of history that Jesus Christ, the God-man who suffered and died, rose again on the third day. That changes everything for us. By his resurrection, he has conquered. By his resurrection, he has won. By his resurrection, he has defeated our sin. He has defeated the world, and he has defeated the devil. And as Paul would write in Romans 1, that he has declared the Son of God with power. It means to the believer, you no longer have a reason to ever be afraid. You have no reason now to be afraid of judgment all of your past sins, all of the things that you shake your head and are so ashamed about, 
they are done. I shared in Sunday school that during the exams, we had one young man who, sharing his testimony, spoke about how as a teenager, he had been arrested and was incarcerated for two years. And brothers on the floor of Presbytery were saying, well, what were you guilty of? What did you do? And he just rattled off those sins. Not smiling, not with a glint of humor in his eyes, but as a sinner saved by grace. And I marveled at his answer. I marveled at the fact that he no longer was going to be beat up for his sins in his past. But here is a man, and I thought, this is, this is the kind of person you want in a church preaching. As somebody who understands what a sinner and a wretch they are and what complete and entire grace is bestowed upon us in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus Christ has done. I no longer fear judgment, the wrath of God. I don't fear the next pandemic, which is forecast to hit next year. I don't fear the crashing economy or an oppressive government or persecution. Understand. I do and I don't. I don't want any of those things. But I preach the gospel, and I hope you do too. Christ has been raised from the dead. It changes everything. It really does. It changes everything. A new day has dawned in which Christ reigns. He has conquered the grave in which nothing will ever separate us from his love, uh, from the love of God in Christ. The angels... They continue and say, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. These women must not delay and must not be silent. My friends, we have a message to tell to the nations. They are to go and tell the disciples that Christ has risen from the dead. Why do you suppose? Why is it so important for them to know? Because they too are distraught, they too are discouraged, they too, like these women, need not to sorrow and fear any longer. He has risen bodily and will go ahead of them into Galilee, another historic marker in this text. Notice, they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. These women had their fear and their sorrow. They went, again, looking at the grave, they just just need to see it. How can this all be? And in a moment, their sorrow is turned to joy. All that is wrong with the world, guess what? It's still wrong with the world. There are dogs and politicians and unjust people and unjust judgments and unjust everything. But notice, they're no longer torn up over it. Why? Because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's good news. That's good news for us. They now have hope because the impossible has been done and Christ has risen. When the scripture says something more than once, friends, you need to zero in on it because it's making a point. Listen to verses 9 and 10. I am almost done. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, 
and there they will see me. The word is true, and Jesus has risen, and you really don't need to be afraid any longer. See, the angels had said it. Behold, I have told you. Matthew records it. The women, as they are obeying the angels' command, they encounter Jesus. We are told that Jesus meets them and greets them, and their faith is now turned into sight. They recognize their Savior. They have come, and they are taking hold of his feet and worshiping him. You can't hold the feet of a ghost. Jesus physically rose from the dead, friends. And do you know why they worshiped him? Not because he was resurrected, but because he is God. And he alone is worthy of worship. And so they worship him, the risen Savior. And notice what Jesus says to them. Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Almost identical to that of the angel. Do not be afraid. And he calls them my brethren. Such kindness towards those who had been so fair weather. He says they they will see me there. There in Galilee, their faith will be turned to sight. There in Galilee, their fears will be turned into rejoicing. Matthew likely wrote this somewhere in the neighborhood of 64 to 70 A.D., Uh, scholars believe, conservative scholars believe. This would have been during the reign of Nero, one of the most brutal emperors. He started at 16. Um, They said he started to become crazy. I've seen other articles that said it might have been the lead that they used in their wine to sweeten it that might have made him mad. Seems like a real possibility. He killed his mother. He killed, I don't know how many of his wives. He lit Rome on fire, it is believed. They say it's a a myth that he played the fiddle or the lyre. Some claim he burned it um, in order to clear a path for a new house. Historians agree that he blamed the Christians and he persecuted the Christians. In fact, at one party, he lit up, I think it was over 200 Christians as nightlights on crosses, dipping them in pitch and then lighting them on fire. Persecution. Don't be afraid. The Christians would have been reading this book in the midst of an emperor like Nero. They faced then what some of our dear brethren across the oceans are now facing on a regular basis. What would the message be to those dear brothers and sisters who, whose parents are being yanked out of the house and thrown in prison, who are being beheaded because they were found with a Bible or because they were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with water. What do you think the angels would say? What do you think the Lord would encourage them in? And what should we encourage them in? And what, by the way, ought we to encourage each other in, in our political atmosphere, in our economic atmosphere, in our tyrannical atmosphere, when we are weaponizing the law 
Do not be afraid. He's risen. And what that means is that he is, he's conquered our sin. And what it means is he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And what it means is that he reigns supreme. That nothing's coming to us apart from his loving care. And what it means, friends, is he's coming again. He's coming again. When he will right every wrong, he will cure every injustice, he will cure every disease, he will cure everything that sin and Satan and this world has done, he will set it all straight. So, my friends, what does the resurrection mean? Don't be afraid. A great day, a great day is coming. The resurrection is important. We shouldn't think of it as just a myth. It should be the very thing that guides us like a carrot stuck in front of a donkey. Leading it, it should be the resurrection front and center in our very thinking as we go through every day, as we encounter every news story, as we encounter every situation, circumstance. It's the resurrection that fills us with hope, and it's the resurrection which gives us a real hope that we can bank on knowing that a better day is coming. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, again for this day and for our risen King. And pray, O Lord, that you would bless your people and that we would find great hope and great confidence, not in ourselves and our abilities, but in what Christ himself has conquered. While the world remains the world and remains in rebellion against you, we know the one who has conquered the world. And we thank you for him. We pray, O Lord, that your blessing be upon us and your church throughout this land and throughout the nations, and that because he lives, we indeed can face tomorrow. Thank you, O Lord. We pray all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen.